Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic. And if indulging in sports is your game, then you've come to the right place to listen to it all because J Reels is my name and this is the host of the J Reels podcast that you've come to listen to. And I welcome you guys aboard, whether it's your first time or your 159th time, as this is episode 159. Welcome and welcome back to each and every one of you guys. Here on a Monday, October the 12th, in the year of our Lord 2020, the J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. More COVID cases, games rescheduled everywhere. Oh, in a week five in the NFL, which I'll get to all the winners and losers of this past week, and even get into a college football weekend we could finally wrap our arms around. To me, the college football weekend began this past Saturday, where we had Texas go down, shootouts everywhere, high-scoring games, just a topsy-turvy college and pro football weekend, which I'll get into later on in the podcast. As for the NHL, we had a cup champion two weeks ago, an NHL draft earlier this week, a few days after that free agency began, and I'll review everything that's gone on, who's gone where, surprising signings as the NHL offseason is open for business. Major League Baseball is now on to the AL and NLCS, where the Tampa Bay Rays won game one of their best of seven against the Houston Astros last night. Dodgers and Braves later on today. I'll review the teams that have made it this far. Also, a little postmortem on the New York Yankees. What changes need to be made there in order to take their team to the next level, a level that they have not seen since 2009. And what Major League Baseball is fearing as far as a worst-case scenario when it comes to a World Series matchup. Definitely want to stay tuned for that. Rafael Nadal wins another French Open, his 13th. What else is new? I'll also have my hero and zero of the week. But we're going to start us off here talking about the word greatness. I understand that's a word that gets thrown around quite a bit. Sometimes it's a little bit too much, almost like candy being given away on Halloween. But when we see it and witness it, we never forget it. And whether it's a fleeting moment when you look back to the 2014 postseason in Major League Baseball, where you had the San Francisco Giant pitcher Madison Bumgarner plow through that postseason, culminating it with five scoreless innings in a Game 7 after pitching two days prior to that, or when you look at an entire body of work, for instance, someone like Wayne Gretzky. And the reason why I bring him up, because here's a guy that holds or shares 61 NHL records. That's right, 61. And is the most dominant player that I've ever watched in my lifetime, in any sport. Look it up. Especially those people who are prisoners of the moment, who think that sports weren't played before the start of the millennium. I mean, they don't call him the great one for nothing. But there are some people, when they look at hockey, for instance, and they don't think that Wayne Gretzky is the greatest player of all time, a.k.a. the GOAT. People will look at Gordie Howe, Mr. Hockey himself, or even Bobby Orr as the greatest hockey player of all time. 
And here you have a guy, Wayne Gretzky, who won nine MVPs, won four Stanley Cups, those aforementioned 61 NHL records, and still people won't look at him as the number one player of all time. Well, this morning, I'm sure the debate has been brought up and it is ad nauseum in my eyes and in my estimation when you look at a one LeBron Ramon James after winning his fourth NBA title last night over the Miami Heat in a game six. And here we go again with all the comparisons that are going to be brought up throughout this country, whether it's on TV, radio, or even podcasts like myself between him, Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time, who ranks as number one, etc. Having to go through a bubble scenario where he was stuck there for over three months, probably the hardest title that any player could ever win. That's all we're going to hear over the course of the next 24, 48 hours or until whenever the next NBA season begins. But I'm here to squash all that because it's not about who ranks where, who has the lead, who's gotten closer. I am tired of that narrative. And if that's what's going to bring ratings elsewhere or if that's what people really want to hear to see if LeBron James does rank higher than Michael Jordan or is now equivalent to Michael Jordan, to me, it's a waste of time. And I'm not going to do that to you people. But the one thing that cannot go unnoticed is that we will not see a player like this ever again. We will not see a guy who dominates basketball games at the age of 35, 17 years into his pro career. That when we look at that body of work, when we look at Wayne Gretzky, as I said before, when you see how many times he's been to the mountaintop, and granted that there's been more players in the history of this league that have done that, whether your name is Bill Russell, whether your name, of course, Michael Jordan, or even Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, that have one more than the aforementioned King James. But the comparisons need to cease because we have to look at his body of work. It's time to look at LeBron from 30,000 feet and not just five feet ahead of you. When you see what he's done throughout the course of his career. And yes, the regular season MVPs seem to slowly but surely fade away as he gets older. But the argument could still be made that even with Giannis Antetokounmpo winning, and deservedly so, the regular season MVP this year, there are a lot of people in certain circles that believe that LeBron James should have been the MVP of the league for the regular season. And as we take a look, and this isn't to cement his legacy any more than what it is, or it isn't to put a cap on his career, because he still has some miles to go. Is he on the back nine of his career? Absolutely. But he's probably right now, where he should be at hole 16, 17, or 18, he's playing like if he's at hole 10, 11, or 12. And there is no slowing down in the near future. And you would think with Anthony Davis re-signing and becoming a part of this Laker franchise, not only just for the next few years, but you would think once LeBron James finally calls it a career, there may be one, two, or who knows, three more championships in the not-too-distant future. And the one thing when we look at LeBron in these 17 years, there hasn't been an NBA career quite like this one. And he's still writing that story to the tune of when it's all said and done, He's going to be the only player in the sport and probably the only player as long as we're alive and who knows if my grandkids, grandkids will ever see a talent like this one. Because when he does finish, he's going to have well over 30,000 points and maybe the all-time scoring leader as well as 10,000 rebounds and 10,000 assists 
which no one has ever even come close in the history of the association. I mean, think about that. There is no player that has walked the earth that has 30,000 points, 10,000 rebounds, and 10,000 assists. If an NBA season does kick off next year and they do play 82 games, it's quite possible that by the end of those 82 games, if there is going to be a season of that length, he will fulfill that. And yes, we could talk about his failures in the postseason, especially when it comes to NBA championships. We could talk about him jumping from team to team, him going to South Beach to team up with Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade, unlike his predecessors where Michael Jordan or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson, they would have just stuck with their teams to try to beat that man as opposed to try to join that super team. Him going back to Cleveland, which to me is his crowning achievement. We could talk about this bubble. We could talk about the Lakers, the franchise, etc. But his legacy was cemented after coming from behind three games to one against Golden State, a 73-win team to win a championship. It doesn't get any better than that. But now we have to add this one to his resume. Four finals MVPs. Three different teams where he's won a finals MVP. And we understand that he's in rarefied air. But the one thing that I'm tired of looking at is seeing the Skip Baleses of the world pound LeBron James or people think that there's no way he's going to come close to Michael Jordan. Can we all put that to rest? Can we just look at the guy's body of work and what he's done and consider him a guy that we're never going to see the likes of ever again? And quite possibly in any sport. Are we going to see a hockey player like Wayne Gretzky? Are we going to see a basketball player like LeBron James? Are we going to see a baseball player like Babe Ruth? To think, Babe Ruth has been long gone for what, 80 some odd years and there hasn't been a player come even close to what he's done. And LeBron belongs in that pantheon of athlete when it comes to greatness. The guy never takes a day off. Does he sit out for maintenance from time to time? He has over the years if you look at his time in Miami especially and I'm sure his second tenure in Cleveland. But he is there game in and game out when the money's on the line. And yes, does he have his peccadillos when it comes to him failing in a big spot in the postseason? We've seen that in 2011 against the Mavericks, but it's not about that. It's about what he's done, where he's gone, and where he is right now. And for everybody out there that just wants to all of a sudden bash him because of what he's done over the course of his career, jumping ship, not getting the legitimate title if you want because he has been ring chasing his whole career for those who loathe them can't stand them or even if you like them or love them the one thing that you have to do at the end of the day is put that bias aside and you have to praise him because this guy is relentless in his pursuit not only just for a championship but just to be better every day and if you can't commend that then you I guess there's another sport you have to watch And that's the one thing when I watch sports and when I witness and see the various talents in all these different sports. And later on, we'll talk about Rafael Nadal and what he's done as far as the French Open is concerned and being an all-time great and watching greatness. But this morning, the whole talk is about LeBron James. And please, people just need to ease back and just appreciate him for what he's done because when he's gone and when we're going to look for that next person to carry the torch for that generation, whomever that may be, will it be Zion Williamson? Will it be John Morant? Who's going to be that guy? Right now, you can't even say. So stop 
Take a step back. Let the hate go. Whatever disdain you have for the man, just appreciate him for what he is. Not only is he a champion, but he has been the epitome of greatness. And I'll start there with the Lakers and what they've done. We get that the NBA deserves a ton of kudos and a ton of credit for everything that they've been able to pull off. Same for the NHL for that matter, which we talked about a couple weeks ago after Tampa won their Stanley Cup. But for the Lakers to pull this off and win their 12th title in Los Angeles, remember if you saw the graphic, it was the Laker franchise winning 17 titles. They do have five in Minneapolis, so we'll go there with that some other time. But when we... See what took place, and I get that. It was tiring after a while. Watching the, look like the same court that they were playing on from day one back in July. No fans in the building. Listening to the ambient noise of the crowd, which that has been become tiring, at least for me, even in baseball now and in football. I wish they could just do away with it. But now that we've crowned a champion and what the Lakers have done, I can't put an asterisk next to it. If anything, Mark Jackson said it best that the Post game where he said, yeah, there is going to be an asterisk next to it because of what these players had to endure here in the bubble to win a title. Not around family, not around friends, pretty much being confined for the last three, three and a half months. And kudos to them. Kudos to everybody involved to pull this off with the big number being zero as far as no positive test concern. So now as I get to the series... I know we talked about it last week where it was 2-1. The Heat were able to get that game three. And then game four, the Lakers were able to pull away. I know LeBron had a very sloppy first half. And then you have Anthony Davis, who was the rim protector in a bunch of key spots, especially down the stretch there in game four, where he was able to make a key block on Jimmy Butler. And knowing that there was just one win away from winning a championship, I thought to myself, with three days off, from the game last Tuesday to Friday, I thought maybe that would benefit the Heat a little bit. And I don't want to say it did, despite the fact them winning a game five. But when you look at that mano a mano, and that was a classic game. That was riveting. Too bad it wasn't even at 2-2 because that probably would have been one of the more better NBA Finals games that you'd ever see. Now, unfortunately, it goes by the wayside as a footnote because they were down 3-1, And it just preempted the inevitable for last night and where the Lakers just blew the doors off over Miami despite the score being 106-93. That score, it was not an indication of how that game was played. But as I go back to game five, you saw Jimmy Butler leave his guts on the floor. You saw the whole Miami Heat team leave their guts on the floor. And even though, as I said earlier, when you look at the term greatness and you look at that word, and it can be overused and overstated on many of occasions, But there are fleeting moments, a la Madison Bumgarner, that you see greatness. And what you saw that night from Jimmy Butler was just that. I mean, he literally emptied the tank. And kudos to them. They were able to extend the series to a six game. But I even said it then and tweeted it that night. I said there was no way Miami wins last night. Because when you have an effort and a performance that when you just leave every ounce of blood, sweat, tears on that floor... To turn around 48 hours to then start up the engine again, it's next to impossible. And you saw that last night to where the Lakers got out to as big as a lead as 36 points. And there was no turning back. 
And the Lakers now look like they're going to be a team that once they re-sign Anthony Davis and LeBron has two more years left on his deal, I believe it's a one-and-one now because remember, he did sign for a four-year deal, but I think after the third year, he has a player option. And all you have to do is just surround yourself with some good pieces. You would think a lot of these players are going to be gone. The Alice Caruso's will stay. I'm sure the Kyle Kuzma's will stay. Those are young guys on their rookie contracts. But Rondo, he's a guy that could probably stay or leave. Remains to be seen. The JaVale McGee's of the world. Obviously the J.R. Smith's of the world. And what a travesty that was. Him taking the trophy. The guy played five seconds in the whole postseason. And here he is right there front and center making it all about him. Dwight Howard, as another guy. I understand people want to congratulate him. And listen, he was on the team. He even made a three-pointer. He came in the game, hit a 28-footer with, what, 25 seconds to go, whatever it was. But even a guy like that, you think he has a championship ring now? He's not going to be back. It's going to be a different Laker team than what you've seen, but as long as you have the two-headed monster, LeBron and AD, you would think they're going to defend their title at some point, whether it's next June, July, August, or September, depending on when the... NBA season starts. And kudos to the Heat. I know a couple weeks ago I said that they could be frauds here in this spot considering how they breezed through the Eastern Conference and they showed a lot of guts. They showed a lot of heart and that was personified by Jimmy Butler and their coach and their whole organization is like that. That's part of the Heat culture. And you would think they're going to be back. They have a young core. They have players that will learn from this and will build from this. And who knows? If this was a different scenario where they actually had to go on the road and play in Milwaukee or play in Boston, would they have made it to the finals? We're never going to know, but they made it to the finals this year. And this is certainly a big building block for them moving forward because they know, and even Jimmy Butler said it. He said, we have unfinished business, but we'll be back. And I would expect that whenever the season starts, that they'll be part of the mix in the Eastern Conference as one of the top few teams. And the Eastern Conference is going to be interesting next year. Not only have to deal with the Bucks, not only have to deal with the Celtics, the Heat, you would think Toronto, but there's a team out there in Brooklyn that is going to have a healthy superstar in the wings. And you wonder how that's going to shake down across the river here where the Nets are looking to make some hay and finally get themselves to the top of the NBA mountaintop. So Lots to discuss there. A lot of off-season stuff. I mean, that that's, remains to be seen. Who knows when free agency begins? We also have a draft. Similar to like the NHL. It seems like win a championship, draft, free agency, which is normally the case anyway, even if it was in the summertime. Because as we know and as we've experienced and witnessed, we've seen that within days, once a champion is crowned, you're going to have your draft and your free agency. But it seems with everything being so compressed and how 2020 has unfolded, Who knows when the season's going to begin, but I'm sure it's going to be fast and furious between now and over the course of the next couple of weeks when we have a draft and have free agency and player movement and things of that nature. And as far as the season, just like I said last week with the NHL, I think the NBA will probably start sometime in January. We're just three days away from the actual middle of the month, October 15th. You would think it's going to be two and a half months before you even think about starting. I believe the NHL did say that they were going to start January 1st. I don't know if they're going to do a Winter Classic deal, but they're targeting the 1st of 2021 to begin, and you would think maybe just a couple weeks after that, they'll start their NBA season. Maybe Martin Luther King Day? That could be an idea. That could be a thought. 
because that will be almost three months since the conclusion of the 2020 season. We'll certainly keep ourselves open, eyes peeled as to when the NBA season will begin and whether it will be with fans, without fans, some fans, who knows. That is all up in the air right now, but I would think Adam Silver and company, they're right now working feverishly to try to get themselves back on track because they know that the new year will be here before you know it and that they have to put out a schedule and get themselves organized, especially with the NHL. As we know, a lot of these cities and a lot of these teams share the same building. So I believe that they'll be working on that round the clock to try to get themselves back up and running, hopefully sometime after the new year. And that's pretty much it with the NBA people. Uh, What else could you say about the finals? To me, game five may be remembered as the best game of the finals for quite some time. But again, it came in an effort where the Heat were down three games to one. Like I said, if that was a 2-2 scenario, oh man, that would have been a game for the ages. But that was a mano a mano that I've ever seen in the finals in quite some time between Jimmy Butler and LeBron James. And that's going to be the one takeaway that I look at this finals. And him slumped over the stanchion there behind the backboard. When you look at it, that's just competition at its finest right there. But it's the Lakers who prevail. It's the Lakers who have the trophy. And congratulations to them for their, that's right, 12th championship as far as the Los Angeles Lakers are concerned. Now that we have both the NHL and NBA playoffs put to rest here for 2020, I'll get to the Major League Baseball playoffs a little bit later on, but I want to get to the NFL because it was a wild, crazy, and wacky week for the Shield, one that they probably soon want to forget and hope that they don't experience any further or deeper than what they've had to go through this past week. As far as the schedule, I'm not going to get into all the different games that have been changed, maneuvered, switched, whatever word you want to use, because as it is right now, you have a game tonight between the Saints and the Chargers, which was your originally scheduled Monday night game. If you recall, earlier this week, with everything that's happened with the Patriots and even Stephon Gilmore was also not another guy that tested positive to go along with Cam Newton. Now, from what we hear, Cam Newton seems like he is 100% and that he would be ready to play Gilmore, kind of up in the air. You know, in New England, they don't want to divulge any information when it comes to their players. But you have a scenario where the Patriots were supposed to play a game against the Denver Broncos yesterday, which was pushed to 5 o'clock today, which now has been rescheduled to next Sunday. So all the maneuvering with a lot of these games that deal with either the Broncos, the Dolphins, the Chargers, the Jets now, Jacksonville, I'm not going to break down which games are moved where and what teams are going to be facing who and what week, etc. It's just too complicated and a lot to get into. But the main thing here is that Denver and New England will play next week. So that game, which was supposed to be played tonight at 5 o'clock, now will have bye weeks. And you also have a game tomorrow between Buffalo and Tennessee, which was supposed to be played yesterday which then puts the Thursday night game between the Chiefs and Bills moved to Sunday. Just a lot of craziness that's gone on and even word from certain camps, whether you're the Jets, where it was alleged that there was a positive result that came from their roster. But then later on, we find out that that was presumably a positive test, but it was ended up being negative. And you have all this chaos and confusion with everything that's happening in New England, 
everything that's happening for sure in Tennessee. Who knows what other teams that have come in contact over the course of the last week or so. We would only hope as fans and the league would only hope that now this could be stabilized. And it's not as if these players aren't practicing social distancing or at least so we think. I understand Tennessee blew it big time by wanting to go ahead and practice at some offsite on the high school, which certainly didn't bode well for them because as we know that their facility had been closed. I believe now it's for the last couple of weeks. And right now there are no positive tests to report. So you would think that everything is going to go as planned tomorrow between Buffalo and Tennessee, which are is a matchup of two undefeated teams. And now, if the NFL is hoping and praying on their hands and knees, fingers crossed, that everything's going to be scot-free from here on out, you know you're sadly mistaken. We're only into week five of this, people. I can see if this is maybe week 10, 11, 12, where they could kind of hold their breaths and say, oh, let's just get to week 17 and then we'll propose a bubble system, which I'm sure they're doing right now. But the NFL, who are now starting to feel these effects of what baseball, basketball, hockey, golf, tennis, all the other sports had to endure. And it's a lot trickier to do here with the NFL because you've heard all the scenarios, I'm sure, between last week and this week, how maybe they will push week 17 and move that to a week 18. And whatever games that need to be rescheduled or need to be played will be now in week 17 just so you don't have the one seeds who are the only team that have buys going into the postseason. Remember, there are seven teams in each conference, so you're going to have three wildcard games in each conference to open up the NFL playoffs. So they want to be fair to that one team that's going to have the extra week off. They don't want them having, in essence, three, maybe even four weeks off if they were to revamp or even shift these weeks to move it one week further so they can reschedule these games for early January. But the problem with that is is that the bye weeks have to align with these teams. And even if it's as simple as moving, let's say, Buffalo and Tennessee to a now new week 17 where you would push week 17 to 18, what happens if you have other teams have the same scenario or even the same team for that matter because this Buffalo-Tennessee game was in jeopardy? Even if you were to move that game to them, what makes you think that this can't pop up at some point with another team and let's say they're going to play Tennessee where they already have a game scheduled for that day. It's just one big giant mess. So even though the idea sounds good and yes, it probably could be proposed, but they still run the risk of having a team miss a game. So does that mean the team with the best winning percentage, if they only play 15 games, they make it to the postseason where the other team is not going to make it and they may have more wins than that team. But because their win percentage is better, it's just one big conundrum that the NFL right now is hoping and praying that they don't have to deal with at any time between now and the end of the season, but certainly these coming weeks because right now this has been concentrated over the last couple of weeks and you would think that if this starts to slow down, not the virus, but the scenario where the players aren't in contact with the outside world, that they could hope to stem the tide and see if they could go week six, seven through the end of the season scot-free or as scot-free as possible. Now we all know it's the ultimate crapshoot. Who knows what's going to take place over these coming weeks. But all they could do is just monitor it and monitor their players as best as possible in hopes to avoid having to reschedule these games all over the map 
and therefore potentially ruining the product and even ruining a season. Because as we all know, at the end of the day, they are not canceling the season. Absolutely not. We understand it's all about the almighty dollar, as we've said time and time again. So we will certainly keep our eye on what the NFL and their players and even their coaching staff, personnel, etc., because they're involved in this too, on how this is going to play out here, over the, especially over the course of the next couple of weeks and obviously for the rest of the season. That's the first thing. The second thing that this wild and crazy week, the NFL experience, is that you didn't have one. You had two coaching and GM firings in the matter of six days. Last Monday... The inevitable happened with coach Bill O'Brien slash GM of the Houston Texans. He's no longer a part of the picture as they realized they had to cut bait. And there was a lot of talk coming out of Houston that there was a squabble between J.J. Watt and Bill O'Brien leading up to the week of the game against the Steelers where he actually questioned his coaching ability. And once that happens, it was just a matter of time before O'Brien was going to get the axe. Do you want to call J.J. Watt a coach killer because of it? Eh. I don't know, there's probably more to the story than we know right now. But as far as O'Brien, it was his time. He had to go. It seemed like he lost the team, whether it was from J.J. Watt or somebody else. All he got to do is look back to his relationship with DeAndre Hopkins. You knew that there was a rift between them two. I don't know if it was more personal than it was business. I get that Hopkins wanted to get paid more, but O'Brien probably said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not worth it. Or you're not bigger than the team, which probably led to that divorce. You look at the foibles in the postseason, all you got to do is just look at that divisional game against the Chiefs where he didn't go for it on fourth and inches and ended up kicking a field goal. I get it that they were up 21-0, but you want to put the foot on the Kansas City Chiefs' neck and that's how you're going to do it. You have to play aggressive. And in turn, he went for the fake punt there at 24-7, but it was deep in his territory, which to me was inexcusable. And I get you could say, but Jay Reels, you just said that he had to be aggressive. You got to put your foot on the Chiefs neck yeah but not when you have the ball deep in your own territory down 24-7 when you're trying to fake punt there to me that was just more panic than it was him trying to be cute or him trying to be a step ahead of Andy Reid and the Chiefs I mean that's just how I look at it that was a bad play and it cost them dearly because as we all know the Chiefs went on and won 51-35 or whatever the score was so you have O'Brien out where Romeo Cornell is now the interim coach. And then in Atlanta, the inevitable finally happened. So even though the baggage will still be over the Atlanta Falcons for what happened back in Super Bowl 51, but the Dan Quinn era is long gone, as well as the GM Thomas Dimitrov, as they got released yesterday after starting their season 0-5. And the interim coach there is Raheem Morris. He's the defensive coordinator who was a one-time coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers many years back. So now you have those two coaches gone. So who's the next domino to fall? Will it be Adam Gase and the New York Jets? You would think so. And if you're Christopher Johnson slash Woody Johnson or whomever Johnson is running that franchise, it's time for you to also say sayonara to your coach because that team and what they've done this year has been as putrid and as pitiful as any team has performed in their first five games of the season. As we get to the games yesterday... To me, the winners and losers of week five, you got to start off with the Las Vegas Raiders. What they did going into Arrowhead, Derek Carr looked like he was his 2015 MVP form. I understand it was a long time ago. I get it. Or 2016, whatever that year was when the 
Raiders got off to that fast start before he broke his leg. Kudos to them putting up 40 on that Chief defense. And I know that defense is a little bit better than advertised, but nobody's going to confuse them with the Purple People leaders, the Monsters of the Midway, the Steel Curtain, Doomsday defense, etc. You could throw the ball all over the lot on that defense. I know they have a pretty good front line and decent front seven, but that secondary, you could torch all day long. And Derek Carr did exactly that. Big game for Henry Ruggs, as the Chiefs are now no longer unbeaten. So the Raiders, a huge win there. Now they're just a game behind them with the tiebreaker edge to the Raiders. So that was an enormous win for them and John Gruden. So big up to the Raiders on their win yesterday out in Arrowhead and especially on the road too. We know how tough that place is to play despite there being whatever it was, 10,000, 11,000 fans in the building. So give it up to them. My second winner, I'll give it to the Houston Texans. No Bill O'Brien. They played fast and loose. I get it was Jacksonville, no big whoop. But I'm sure having that presence or just the turbulence in the organization, in the locker room, Bill O'Brien and everything that had transpired, not only going back to the playoff game last year, but everything starting off this year. Tough schedule. But for them to get off the snide was good for them. Let's see if they could try to righten the ship and get themselves with some decent footing in an AFC South, which still could be had. Now, if Buffalo were to beat Tennessee tonight, there'll still be two and a half games behind them, but they haven't played Tennessee just yet. They haven't played Indianapolis as well, so they still have head-to-head competition against them. So even though at one and four, and their season looked like it's uh, on the fringe of not even coming anywhere near close to the postseason, they have their destiny in front of them. So who knows if this is the step in the right direction for a Texan franchise that has gotten off the snide, and let's see if that could possibly happen under the tutelage of a one Romeo Cornell. And my last winner isn't team-related, but you have to give it up for Alex Smith, who came in the game yesterday. Kyle Allen was a non-factor. Dwayne Haskins was benched early in the week by Ron Rivera. So in comes Alex Smith, first time in almost two years since that terrible, gruesome leg injury that he suffered against the Texans. He did go 9 for 17 for 37 yards. They try to keep it short and sweet and simple for him. But he got sacked six times. And I did watch some of his performance And just knowing that he was getting rushed, it seemed that every snap, man, my heart was skipping a beat for the guy. Uh, Listen, as courageous as it could possibly be, not only just his comeback story, but for him to get in the game, hands down, he should be winning number one of the week considering everything he had to endure. But my uh, shout out goes to Alex Smith as far as being one of my winners of the week. And my losers, first and foremost, what in the hell happened to the San Francisco 49ers? I get that Garoppolo, after being injured a couple weeks ago against the Jets, his first action back since the injury, but he was downright awful. They should have kept Nick Mullins in the game. I believe he was probably hurt because Garoppolo was pulled for C.J. Beathard, who came in, where in that first half, they were down 30-7, to and Garoppolo's numbers were 7-17 for with two interceptions. And they paid him how much money to be quarterback of this team? Not to knock Garoppolo by any stretch, but man, that was a pathetic performance. And the Dolphins, you know, this isn't the no-name defense of the 72 unbeaten team. So for the Dolphins to go cross-country, to play at San Francisco, where Jimmy Garoppolo comes back, and for him to put up that dud, I don't know if that's a bad sign, but it certainly does not look good for the Niners. So you got to wonder, with some separation, Seattle pulling out a victory that they had no business winning, and the Rams going up to 4-1, and 
The Niners, who have a huge game next week against the Rams, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but they're looking at their season going out to sea right about now. Health of their team is poor. We know Bosa's been gone, and they've been nicked up all over the place. And now with Garoppolo, with just a pathetic performance, you got to wonder if this Niner team is going to be long for a 2020 NFL season this year. So they're my first loser of the week. And my second loser, I got to say it, it was Tampa Bay. Chicago's a fake 3-1 team. I know Nick Foles and the Magic against Brady now that he's got these two victories going back to the Super Bowl a few years back. But for him to lose count of how many downs it was and even him even admitting afterwards he should have went for the yards and not for the distance. Oh, it's easy to say now. And can you knock Brady overall? You can knock him for that spot. That was a rookie mistake by him. He should have known better. I don't know what he was thinking in that moment. But for Tampa to come up short in Chicago, and we understand that defense, Khalil Mack, led by him, understood, Eddie Jackson, etc. But that was just a bad job by them. That's a game that they should have won. No excuses. They would have put themselves in great position in the NFC South. But now with the Saints playing tonight, it's going to thrust them back into the mix. So we'll see what uh, takes place with the, between them and the Chargers. But Tampa Bay, they get my follow-up loser of the week. And when we look at the Week 5 schedule... The biggest news came out of Dallas yesterday. Not only the outcome of the game where the Cowboys won 37-34 over the New York Giants, but the news of Dak Prescott dislocating his ankle, had successful surgery last night. Just an awful scene. You don't want to see that with any player. But when you look at a guy who is the quarterback of America's team, a guy who signed a one-year franchise, $31 million contract, a guy that now you have to say his future is, is suspended right now. You don't know whether or not he's going to get that big payday. You would only hope that his contract this year could set him up for life and that he doesn't make poor investments and things of that nature. That's another story. But the point of the matter is is that he still had his whole NFL future in front of him and now it's up in the air. Just a sad and terrible scene down at AT AT&T Stadium and we only hope for the best for a speedy recovery for Wong Dak Prescott. But that was a big game for the Cowboys to win because if they would have lost that game, five weeks into an NFL season, you would have had four teams with one win for all intents and purposes tied for first place in the NFC East. Now that distinction would have gone to the Eagles because even though they lost to Pittsburgh yesterday, but because of the tie that they had with Cincinnati, their record would have been 1-3-1. and They would have been your first place team with the Cowboys, Redskins, and Giants all at 1-4. and four. But because they won yesterday, they're 2-3. and three, So I don't know if that's anything to shake the blue and silver pom-poms because you did lose your quarterback for the rest of the season. But right now, five weeks in, they are in first place, whether they're one game under 500 or two games. But obviously, in this case, they're one game under 500. So the Cowboys are your NFC least division leaders as of right now. Other games yesterday... I know last night, to my guys, Headstyle and Kev the Viking fan, I know you're going to look at the stats at the end of the day and say, how do we dominate this game and lose? And it boils down to your coach. At 26-21, fourth and inches, and I understand you have a guy who ran all over the field last night and his name was not Dalvin Cook. His name was Alexander Madison who rushed for 112 yards and was rumbling, bumbling, stumbling throughout that final drive. But when you're fourth and inches at about the eight-yard line or whatever it was, 
And at 26-21, for him not going for the field goal, to me, that's a fireable offense. I know there are no fans in the building. I understand it's a road game technically, but you still have to have that road mentality. You have to put points on the board. Let them go down the length of the field. Let them get in the end zone and let them earn the two-point conversion. And as it was, we don't know how it's played out because we can't reverse time, but as it was, they went for two and what happened? They didn't execute. You kicked the field goal. The game was 29-27. You win the game and that's it. No questions answered. And to me, that was first guess. That's not a second guess. That's not after Seattle got the ball. And even with them at a fourth and 10, where Russell Wilson had to throw a bomb down the left sideline and DK Metcalf came up with it, which made you think if you're a defensive back and defensive coordinator for the Vikings, what in the hell happened on that play? Because leading up to that play, Russell Wilson was spiking the ball into the ground. He was missing receivers big time. And there, he threw up a pseudo Hail Mary and it came down in the hands of Metcalf to the point where they're at midfield and they have plenty of time to march down the rest of the field, punch it in the end zone and come out with a 27-26 victory. Why Zimmer did not go for a field goal there is beyond me. And I understand. He's telling his defense to say they still have to get a touchdown. They got to go 90 some odd yards. It's a minute and whatever it was, 50 some odd seconds to go. And he trusted his defense. He should have went with his gut and kicked the field goal. Because all they had to do at that point was just march down the field, get a touchdown, a two-point conversion. And I get it. You kick the ball off, they get the ball to 25, whatever. All right, we understand that. But man, that to me, that was a head-scratcher. Brutal loss for the Vikings. Seattle's still undefeated, 5-0. Also, Cleveland winning against Indianapolis, 32-23. That's a game where the Browns, for the first time since 1994, are 4-1. And which leads to a matchup next week, which we'll talk about in a few minutes against the Pittsburgh Steelers, which I am salivating, salivating at the thought of it. But Cleveland, after their opening week bomb against the Ravens, have now won four straight. Good performance by Baker Mayfield. Team has done well. This was the Cleveland Brown team that a lot of people thought we're going to see last year. But now here they are with all the talent that they have on offense and defensively, eh, To me, the talent is there, but they have not been able to show and prove, I think, at least early on. And I understand they played the Bengals and they played even Indianapolis. I know they came in at 3-1 and and they were able to neutralize them. But now they're about to get into the deep end of the pool, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We'll give it up to the Browns as we have a logjam atop the AFC North with the Baltimore Ravens as they easily won their game against the Bengals yesterday. And strange stat here. Lamar Jackson was 19 for 37 on a day where the Bengals had the majority of the ball. I believe they had the ball for almost 35 minutes. And Jackson had to throw the ball almost 40 times, which is rare to see, especially with a team that had a 27-3 victory. Because generally when you see 27-3, you think, oh, Lamar Jackson probably rushed for 90 to 100 yards. He probably went 18 for 22 180 yards, a touchdown, and that wasn't even the case. He actually threw a bad pick in the red zone there in the third quarter, but the Bengals, they were inept offensively. They couldn't protect their quarterback. Joe Burrow was on the siege all day. Joe Mixon only had 59 yards on the ground, and the Ravens come out with a relatively easy victory. I'll get to the Steelers now since we're on the AFC North tip. Steelers had a game yesterday where you have to question their defense a little bit, 
and I've said this going back to before week one, this defense has a chance to be great. They are far from it. They have the talent, personnel, etc. But they have these moments in these games where they just, I don't want to say they fall asleep or they just have these lapses. I don't know what it is. But at 31-14, there is no way that you have the Eagles. And I'm not trying to knock the Eagles by any stretch. They played well. Travis Fulgham, the guy is now Jerry Rice all of a sudden. He certainly shredded that Steelers secondary yesterday. But for them to be at 31-14 and to have the Eagles not only score twice and once on a two-point conversion to where it was 31-29 and for them to have the ball late in the game where they could actually take the lead, it shouldn't even come to that if you're a great defense or even a good defense for that matter. All right, that's not to say that you're going to shut them down. They're not going to score any points in the second half. But the one concern I have is where was this defense? Did they all of a sudden play soft? Were they in prevent? Oh, what was going on? And I didn't quite understand that because I was very confused to know that when the Steelers out of the half at 17-14, they marched down the field. Chase Claypool had the game of his life and he's only five games into his career. Three receiving touchdowns, one rushing touchdown. They had the two touchdowns in a span of a minute and a half after getting the touchdown there by Claypool from a, what was a five-yard pass. And then after a Steven Nelson interception deep in Philadelphia territory, James Conner runs it in for one yard to make it 31-14. And then all of a sudden, it was almost as if the Steeler defense thought it was two minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Like I said, Fulgham shreds them for a ton of yards. They get back in the game. Why Doug Peterson went for two at 31-20 was beyond me. It didn't make any sense. But they were able to cut the lead from 31-22 to 31-29. And then the Steelers, after a turnover there by Eric Ebron, Past midfield into Philadelphia territory where I thought for a second if the Steel defense gives this up I am going to shred them the ribbons here because if you're going to be a great defense you got to make these big stops and Lord knows in some of these games they've done that they did that against the Texans when they had to make a big stop they also did that prior when they had to stop Denver deep in their territory from them getting the go-ahead score late in the game It really makes you question as a fan whether or not this defense, and they've been able to show it so far, but let me see this against a very good offense. Let me see this against Kansas City. Let me see this against Baltimore. Even Buffalo, for that matter, and what they've done so far this early part of the season. And they're going to see Buffalo later on down the road. Let me see this against those type of offenses, and then I'll be sold on whether or not this is a great defense. Right now, it's good to pretty good. I can't even say it's very good. Because when you look at the point totals that they've given up over the course of the first five weeks or four weeks, they only played four games. I mean, they gave up 21 to Denver. They gave up 21 to Houston. They gave up 29 to the Eagles when they were up by 17 in the second half. It's not a great defense. Now, I understand when they come up in big spots and they've done so in this early part of the season. But what's going to happen when they go up against those aforementioned teams like I mentioned? Now, they're not going to see Kansas City on the schedule, but they will see Baltimore two times. They're going to see Cleveland next week. They're going to see the Bills down the road. So, something you got to keep in mind here, people, when you're the Steeler fan and you're thinking at 4-0, you're ready to all of a sudden crown yourself a Super Bowl champion. And you also got to remember the teams that they faced so far in this early season. You know, they didn't uh, play world beaters here, to say the least. Now the Steelers 4-0 for the first time since 1979 to think 
even in the Bill Cowher era, uh, so far in this Mike Tomlin era, they have not been 4-0. So you have to go back to when Chuck Noll was the coach of the team. And the 79 season when they won their fourth Super Bowl. That's how long it's been since they started off their season undefeated after four games. So let's see what's going to happen there next week as we'll go through the schedule in a minute. The other games of yesterday, and the schedule was weak sauce. I mean, let's face it. Is anybody going to get crazy about the Rams winning in Washington? Now, good for the Rams. They're 4-1 and one and they're keeping pace with the Seahawks. But 30-10, to 10, that game was pretty much over in the first half. I understand the Alex Smith story was refreshing and just wonderful to see. But other than that, there's nothing to write home about. Same for Carolina and Atlanta. We talked about Dan Quinn being fired. Arizona at the Jets. Another ho-hum game. And that's pretty much what you have there for week five. Tonight we have the Chargers in New Orleans at the Superdome. And that looked like it was going to be moved to Indianapolis because of Hurricane Delta coming through that area. But as of now, they're going to play in the Superdome. So they'll have their home field advantage, even though not many fans or if no fans in the building. And then we have Buffalo, Tennessee, as we mentioned earlier. Your two unbeatens going up at it. And you figure one of them will lose, barring a tie. And with the way the NFL is this day and age, who knows? But week six, we know the Thursday night game's not going to be played. That's been pushed to Sunday between Kansas City and Buffalo. In fact, it's pushed to Monday now that I think about it. So my apologies there. Monday, 5 o'clock, because the game is Tuesday. They want to give Buffalo an extra day rest, so they're going to move that to Monday before the Arizona-Dallas game. And that game loses a little bit of luster with Prescott being out, although Andy Dalton is a capable backup. And with Arizona winning yesterday, brings a little juice to that game. But your week six slate, right now, your highlighted game, you're going to look at the 425, Green Bay at Tampa Bay. It would have been nice if Tampa would have won the game in Chicago. It would have been a little bit more sexier, but when you have Brady and Rodgers, you have plenty of sex appeal there. So you have your late game for the country to see down in Tampa. Your Sunday night game is the Rams at San Francisco, which this is a do-or-die game for the Niners. You can't have four losses after six games, and you've already lost once to Arizona. You have not played Seattle yet. To have another loss under your belt in the division with the Rams, they're looking at a long season if that's the case. So even with all the injuries and everything that transpired with the Niners yesterday, that is still a big game and a marquee game to see what the Niners are going to be made of here in 2020. As far as the 1 o'clock games are concerned, your highlight game is Cleveland and Pittsburgh. And they allowed some fans in the building yesterday. I believe it was about 5,500. Now this is going to be the second game, but the first for Miles Garrett against the Steelers and with Marquise Pouncey on the field since the incident last year in Cleveland with Mason Rudolph and Miles Garrett. Who knows if the NFL is going to do anything to defuse that, if there's going to be warnings put out, etc. But again, if you remember, that game took place on a Thursday night last year, and then two weeks later, both teams went at it, but again, no Miles Garrett because he was gone for the year, and then Pouncey was serving a two-game suspension. So now that you're going to have Pouncey and Garrett back in Pittsburgh is going to be fascinating theater. And with both teams, with four wins, obviously the Steelers undefeated and the Browns trying to stake their claim, not even just in the division, but also for the conference, this is an enormous game. And when you look at all the other games, Houston at Tennessee, Cincinnati at Indianapolis, Atlanta at Minnesota, Denver and New England, which as I said earlier was rescheduled, Washington at the Giants, 
Detroit at Jacksonville, New York at Miami, the Jets that is, Chicago at Carolina. These games, as I like to say, are a snooze fest. It's almost as if the NFL schedule is going backwards. And not just because of COVID and having to reschedule these games, but week four was bad, week five was worse, and now this? All right. You have those games, as I mentioned, in the afternoon and the evening, and then the one o'clock game is Cleveland-Pittsburgh. Other than that, why even bother watching any of the other games? That is a putrid slate. And then your Monday night games, like I said, Arizona-Dallas, which is decent, and then Kansas City-Buffalo, which is going to be good. But it's a five o'clock game. It's going to be on Fox. And Kansas City's going to be chomping at the bit. Who knows if Buffalo will be undefeated? But that's going to be a game that has major ramifications down the road as far as tiebreakers are concerned in the AFC. So we'll keep our eyes on that. All right, let me get into the college football here before I turn my attention to baseball. Now, to me, this is the first weekend that you could actually wrap your arms around and sink your teeth into when it comes to college football. Now, the Big Ten, we're not going to see for a few weeks, and we're not going to see the Pac-12 till next month. But this weekend, between Florida being upset by Texas A&M on a few goal as time expired, when you look at Alabama and Old Miss, it looked like a college basketball score, where Bama went 63-48, to Oklahoma, which kissed their postseason hopes goodbye over the last couple of weeks, pretty much said the same to Texas as the Red River shootout was that and then some. Winning in four overtimes, defeating the Longhorns 53-45. I mean, you have all these scores, you would think that you're watching the NCAA tournament. Miami, I understand they've been a good story so far. And for the people who love the Hurricanes, they want to see that swag back. They want to see them come back to prominence, come back into the college football psyche, you knew going up against Clemson, that was going to be an ultimate smackdown. And you saw that there on Saturday night. There were no match for Trevor Lawrence and company as they annihilated them 42-17. Georgia keeps themselves in the mix there as they pummeled Tennessee. Now, mind you, they were actually trailing at the half, 21-17, but then they just turned on the Jets took off and left them in the dust in the second half with 20, uh, 27 unanswered points to win 44-21. to 21. And then you wonder now with Florida losing, when we take a look at the rankings, you're going to have Clemson number one, Alabama number two, Georgia number three, which were the top three. Florida number four, after their loss, you know they're going to plummet a little bit. Now North Carolina had just a, another one of these crazy games as they had... They're running back Michael Carter rushed for 214 yards in beating Vatek. What was that score? 56-48. Another crazy high-scoring game. You would think North Carolina will probably move up to number four now. I know a lot of people will think Ohio State, once they get started, that they belong in that top four. But again, since they haven't played, you're going to have to move North Carolina up a rung as well as Notre Dame. And you would think with Notre Dame beating Florida State, they're going to be the team to catapult themselves to the number four spot over Ohio State, which is weird to have them up there. And I was looking at the rankings there earlier to think that they're one of the top-ranked teams, and deservedly so, but if they haven't played a game, why, why are they even listed there? It's beyond me, and I guess you got to fill it out somehow for whatever the reason, but that's college football in 2020 as we know it. But you would think that with Notre Dame and then North Carolina will be 4-5 and five, or maybe 4, 5, and 6, depending on how the committee is going to look at where these teams should be ranked. So Notre Dame pulls themselves into the top four of the nation. 
And as we take a look ahead to the college schedule this week, you have your barn burner and the highlight game of the day, which will be on CBS 8 o'clock, number three, Georgia, at number two, Alabama. That is going to be the game, probably not only just of the day, the game of the month. Because until you get LSU down there, and even though LSU is not LSU as they were last year, but you know LSU and Alabama is always that rival that everybody's going to keep an eye on. But right now, the college football world will be all on Tuscaloosa, 8 p.m. Saturday, to see those two teams go at it. And as we know, and seen time after time, Alabama always gets the best of Georgia. Whether it's in a championship setting, whether it's in a conference championship setting, it doesn't matter. Saban always seems to get the best of these moments at the expense of the Georgia Bulldogs. Not many other big games of note this week. Speaking of LSU, they're going to play Florida at the Swamp. I know a lot of people thinking that maybe the Swamp will be close to capacity or if not at capacity come Saturday when the Tigers invade Gainesville to play the Gators. Other than that, not really any games of note. Clemson's going to play Georgia Tech. And to me, it's going to be all about the Georgia-Alabama matchup. And we'll see which team is going to take a step back from the top of the college football rankings as we move along on this college football season and we'll talk all about it next week. So now we have a college football season that we could look ahead to, look forward to, finally get to chew on, digest, regurgitate, whatever you want to call it. And I know for the college football fan that's listening, you could finally rejoice and say, all right, Jay Reels has finally come to the promised land and the holy grail of college football because these first few weeks, there wasn't really much to talk about. You know, you didn't have your early Notre Dame-Michigan game. You didn't really have a game that you could shake a stick at or jump up and down and go crazy. I know LSU lost that game earlier this year and Coach Ed Orgeron is still looking for answers to his team and all of that. I understand there were some storylines, but not when you have all these other things that were going on, which are going to take precedence over and importance. But now that these leagues and these champions have been crowned in the NHL and NBA and soon to be MLB, all we're going to have left is college football and the NFL. Because think about it. This was the season right now where the NHL would have begun about a week ago and the NBA would have been starting next week. So we don't have to worry about any of that. It's going to be football, 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 and whatever sports news that comes from that outside of football, obviously the baseball, but people, now we can exhale and get into the college football, and I'll be sure to get into it each and every week from here on out. So now let's move our attention to baseball. And now that we're getting just a little bit closer to a World Series, to crowning a third champion over the course of 30 days, pretty much, because now that the NHL, I believe, was two weeks ago today, and then the NBA yesterday, by the end of October, we'll have a champion. And right now, the Final Four sits to where it's Tampa hosting Houston as they have the decided home field advantage, or quote-unquote, as they won game one yesterday, 2-1. to one. The Astros had their chances, and chances are plenty, especially in that eighth inning where they had the bases loaded. They brought in Diego Castillo and Yuli Goriel weekly, grounded into a double play to end that threat. And the Astros, I know they're going to be kicking and screaming into... Game two tonight or this afternoon, I believe they're playing at four o'clock where they had ample opportunity to either take the lead or even blow the game open and they were unable to do so. And how I look at the series before yesterday was just that. 
to be able to cool the bats of Carlos Correa, George Springer, Michael Brantley, Alex Bregman, uh, go down the list. We know how lethal of an offense they are and how they pretty much carried them to this point. And we know about the Tampa bullpen and how deep they are and the hard throwers, etc. And they can throw openers at you. They could close 13 different guys. We get all that. But how this series boils down to is being able to neutralize those guys because they've just been on fire. When you look at Carlos Correa hitting two home runs in the previous series against Oakland, same for George Springer. They still have that championship medal, whether you think they're cheaters or not, and I think they are, but as of right now, they have not lifted or pulled down the banner from Minute Maid Park. They're still champions in the book. And they still have that DNA. And in order for you to slow down that team, because their pitching is terrible. I know Framber Valdez is a guy that who pitched pretty good yesterday, but we know there are no Justin Verlanders coming through. Obviously not Garrett Cole. Zach Greinke's a shell of his old self. So they're going to have to piecemeal this together in order for them to get back to a World Series. And to me, that is the big negative for the Astros. So if their big hitters aren't going to perform here, Tampa's going to win the series. I picked before yesterday Tampa to win in seven. I figured the Astros and their metal, toughness, everything, that they will push this series as deep as it possibly could go. But Tampa, I think from top to bottom, they have the better team. Now, I'm hoping for Houston to win. And I'll explain why in a minute. But Tampa, they're formidable. And they don't have the superstar player. They don't even have the star player on their team. In fact, you couldn't even name, if you're a casual baseball fan, probably five Tampa Bay Rays. I think I said that last week, but it's true. Unless you're a big baseball fan and you follow baseball, This is as nondescript as a team. Now, granted, they have the arms and they have the pitching. And that's pretty much their identity. But at the same time, this team is not to be confused with the Big Red Machine. It's not to be confused with any of the Yankee teams of the past. Or you can even say the Astro team that won a World Series in 2017. Where it has that identity. The Rays are pretty much a no-frills team that has no-frills players. But they have maximum effort and have maximum performance. When you have guys like Randy Arozarena hitting home runs, it seems like game after game, and not knowing who he was if he fell on you, is just indicative of how this Tampa Bay Ray organization works. Yeah, they may get players off the scrap heap. Yeah, they may get pitchers that you never heard of that are only making $700,000. But that's their philosophy. And guess what? It's worked. So how could you knock it? And their journey to get here just like the Astros, and I'll start with the American League before I get to the National League. The Astros beat the A's, and the A's did show a little guts there and gumption in winning a Game 3. They were down 7-4 in the seventh inning, and they piled on five runs in the final three frames in order for them to win. And that was a huge win for an A's team that, as we all know, had to get the piano off their back, winning that opening wild card round as they did, and then having to get to this round against their division nemesis, and they were unsuccessful. They even had an early lead in game four. They spit that up. The Astros had another 7-4 lead in game four, but then they never looked back and they won in four games. And now the Astros are here down 0-1, but still plenty of baseball to be played. Whereas the Rays, last week, 
Lost game one to the Yankees. It was closer to the ninth inning before Giancarlo Stanton hit the grand slam and they won 9-3. And they were able to beat the Yankees in games two and three where for whatever the reason, Aaron Boone tried to outray the Rays at their own game by pitching the rookie Davey Garcia, pulling him after one inning and then bringing in Jay Happ because they loaded the lineup with left-handed batters and they figured by putting Happ in the game, there was going to be advantage to the Yankees, lefty against lefty, but Happ isn't that type of guy where he's a lefty specialist and gets lefties out. So that was a bad job on his part. And I'm going to get to Aaron Boone a little bit. But then the Rays were able to steamroll the Yankees in game three. Yankees came back in typical fashion to make it a five-game series. And then all you have to do is look at game five, a game of solo home runs where their name is Aaron Judge for the Yankees. Austin Meadows for the Tampa Bay Rays. And then in the eighth inning, off of Aroldis Chapman, the ultimate payback, the ultimate revenge from Mike Brousseau, who got thrown at his head in the regular season during a series at Yankee Stadium. And that, I'm sure, as much as he didn't bring that up or didn't want to put the emphasis on that in the postgame, but I know deep down inside, that was as sweet as it could possibly be for one Mike Brousseau. A guy who was undrafted, a guy that was an underdog pretty much his whole life, and here he is on a big stage in a big spot hitting a home run off of a reliever that, let's face it, his best days are behind him. And I'll get to the Yankees in a minute. But the Rays now win a game five. Their season continues. They're up one love here. And they have as good a shot as anybody to get back to World Series. And why not? And when I say get back, of course, they did go to the World Series in 2008 when they lost to the Phillies. But here's a team that had the best record in the American League and right behind the Dodgers. So it should be to no one's surprise that they're at this point for a reason. And now they're three games away from getting the World Series. And I'm going to touch on that in a little bit as far as the World Series, but let me get to the Yankees before I get to the National League. When I watched that Friday night and I saw what happened, especially in that eighth inning where Aaron Boone decided to pinch hit the catcher, Kyle Higashioka from Mike Ford. And I thought to myself, Mike Ford hasn't gotten a hit since August. And I understand it's lefty-righty. He's going up against Diego Castillo. But why not put Clint Frazier in? Why not pinch hit him? To me, that didn't make any sense. And then on top of that, you knew that once Higashioka was out of the game, Gary Sanchez had to come in as a defensive replacement. Now, mind you, it didn't backfire or it didn't hurt him in the short term in those final two innings. But could you imagine if they had runners on base and there was a pass ball and then a base hit and those two runs scored or the winning run scored because of Gary Sanchez's defensive gaffe? Aaron Boone wouldn't live that down. So to me, that was terrible managing there. And then all you got to do is look at game two as he tried to outduel the Rays at their own game. What was he trying to accomplish? Now, I can't put it all on him only because... In this day and age, the way baseball is played and the way baseball is viewed, it's all about the analytics. It's all about the sabermetrics. We have to include the GM and the staff behind the scenes, the nerds, who compute all these statistics to show that the only way we could win a game beforehand is by presenting the data and going with that data because that's what's going to work in baseball in 2020. And as I know, and I'm sure some people the traditionalists do not know that that is an absolute joke. Because leaving Garcia, 
Let him pitch. If he gets into trouble, if he gets bombed, then you want to bring in Hap, fine. But why he decided to go to Hap after that, and we saw what happened in the innings once Hap was in the game, not only it makes you scratch your head, it makes you bang it up against the wall. Because whether it's Brian Cashman, whether it's Randy Levine, or even Aaron Boone for that matter, and Boone, of course, is handcuffed because he has to do what it's told. But it's just just to see the way baseball is played, and even Dave Roberts for that matter, the other night, too, against the Padres in that game four where he pulled his pitcher after one inning, Dustin May. And it's just, what is going on? Why is baseball being played like this? Ah. Again, these are the people who are in these offices that never swung a bat to save their life, that they couldn't make a throw from here to across the street. But they try to reinvent the game to the point where it's like, oh, I know which player deserves to start or which pitcher needs to be put in at this spot against this batter, against this. It's nonsense. Back to the Yankees. So as I was watching that unfold and the Chapman at bat against Brousseau, and we all know Ron Darling said it best, the more swings, the more looks he gets at that fastball, it's just a matter of time before either he's going to walk or he's going to get a good piece of wood on it. And a good piece of wood it was as it sailed over the left field fence. And the Yankees came up meekly in the ninth. One, two, three. And as I love to say, Once the Yankees make that final out, especially in the postseason, it's another winter that I can sleep in peace. Thank goodness for that. But here are the issues with the Yankees that need to be addressed here this offseason. If you're Brian Cashman, Randy Levine, etc. First and foremost, you need to find that number two starter. I don't know about the health of Luis Severino. Right now, it's back-to-back years that he's been on the shelf. You would think he's going to come back 100% raring to go to be his old self, if not even better. But he's a big, giant question mark. Who knows about the status of Domingo Herman, who was rumored to be retiring, and we all know that that wasn't the case. He said he would want to come back and want to play, and you'd only hope for the Yankees with what he did last year, 18-4. I understand he had a high ERA, but that's another arm in their arsenal. You also have Jordan Montgomery, who's a left-hander that you could put as a fifth starter. So that could form out the rest of your rotation. And then if you could somehow, some way bring in a number two guy, that would suit the Yankees' needs because you don't want Severino to be your two guy right now because you don't know what you're going to get out of him. Same for Domingo Herman, same for Jordan Montgomery or any other guy that they have in the minors that could take that leap up and be part of the rotation. So you don't have to put all your chips into the Garrett Cole basket as the one guy that's going to come in and save you. And props to Garrett Cole, too, for his performance in Game 5. First time he's pitched on three days rest. He was able to get out of a first inning, which was very dicey. 25 pitches. You were thinking, he's probably not going to be long for this game. Then he did get into some trouble in the fourth inning. No, I believe it was the fifth inning where he threw an upwards of 20 to 25 pitches. But he went through six, had a very good performance, gave you everything he had, and no complaints from there. But he cannot be the only guy in your rotation that's going to deliver the mail for you. You got to have another guy to back him up that's going to be not necessarily a 1A, a guy that could be a bona fide 2 or even a 2A. Just look at the Phillies and what they did last year by bringing in Zach Wheeler to compliment Aaron Nola. A guy like that. Who's on the market? I don't know right now. Or a guy that they could trade for? Right now, I haven't even thought about that mode as far as who the Yankees could trade with. But that's a guy that they need to have in their rotation. Because this bullpen, as we've seen time and time again, as good as they've been, but for whatever reason, they haven't come through 
especially the guy in the back end, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, number two, I think it's time if you're a Yankee fan, I know it may be tough to part with him, but check the receipts. I talked about this last offseason. It's time to trade Gary Sanchez. I don't know what you're going to get back for him. I believe he's still two years away from free agency, so you should get something of worth for him. Does that mean you're going to get a top flight pitcher from somebody else's roster? You could, but you probably got to throw in somebody else. Maybe Clint Frazier? I put a question mark by there because who knows with the Yankees, they may bring back Brett Gardner for one more year, meaning that Clint Frazier is going to be on the outs and away we go. You're going to have that whole scenario where Frazier's not going to get any time and he's just going to sit there and rot. And why? Let him play the outfield all offseason long. I don't know if there's going to be Arizona leagues considering with COVID and et cetera. Probably not, but let him get to a backyard or backfield down in Tampa somewhere and just catch pop-ups all day long between now and February 14th. But the Yankees need to part ways with this guy because he has regressed. Forget about defensively. He is just completely lost there. But as dangerous as he is as a hitter, the guy is barely batting his weight. In fact, it's probably well below that. And this isn't just for one year. This is the last two years. So I think it's time to trade him while the getting is good. And it may not be much. But if you're Brian Cashman, you still have youth, two years left on his contract, as selling points to try to get something back in return. Because besides that, other than trading Davey Garcia or Gleyber Torres, which you know the Yankees aren't going to do, how else are they going to get that number two starter back? And also in the process, get they need a lefty bat in the worst way. Forget about Aaron Hicks. I know he's switch hitter and he bats predominantly left-handed, but no. You need a guy that's going to be a left-handed stick, preferably with power. Not that the Yankees need it, but if you want to have balance in that lineup, put a guy who's a good left-handed bat, who knows? Maybe a guy that can play the outfield full-time because that's where they're going to need it. They got Luke Voigt at first base. Maybe he's going to be another chip that they could pawn off to get that type of player back, whether it's a pitcher or a left-handed bat. But at the same time, it begins and ends with Sanchez because he's a guy that they need to get off the team. Maybe not yesterday, but I don't know if he's going to get any better. And you have enough right-handed bats in the lineup and power, Torres, Stanton, Judge that could carry the load than to have a guy like Sanchez that's going to bat 150, play terrible defense, and yeah, he'll give you the occasional home or a thrill every now and again, but is it really worth it? Uh Uh-uh. It's time to say goodbye. And with Chapman, you have one year left on his deal, but Chapman is far from the dominant closer that he once was, let's face it. And we've seen that now, not only just this year, or you can look back, oh, Altuve too, giving up these two home runs in back-to-back postseasons. As a Met fan, I saw it this year where Ahmed Rosario took him in a save situation. Same for J.D. Davis as he gave up a home run at City Field in the bottom of the ninth up 7-6. We saw this in 2016 as a member of the Cubs. He was on fumes, but he gave up a key three-run homer to Rajai Davis. So this pattern here has progressively gotten worse for a guy who throws 100 miles an hour and has a killer slider. But right now, it's between his ears. And you got to ride it out with him. You're not going to trade him. You're not going to dump him. You're going to have to go with what you have. But I'm sure the Yankee fan is longing for the days of Mariano Rivera because 
the way Chapman is spitting the bit in these games, especially these crucial, high-level, high-pressure games, I'm sure you want him off the team yesterday. But that's not going to happen. And who knows what's going to happen with the one David John LeMahieu. And that's also a very interesting topic. He's 32 years old. This is going to be his last big payday. I would think he's going to want minimum five, maybe six years. And we're talking at least $25 million a year. Do the Yankees go ahead and pay that? Knowing that they have to pay Aaron Judge? Knowing that they have to pay if they keep him Gary Sanchez? Now Sanchez probably isn't going to be as worth as much as he would have been a couple of years ago, but they're still going to have to pay him. Gleyber Torres? Guys like that where they're going to have to fork over the big bucks and they already have given Garrett Cole $326 million and they still have $210 million to pay for Giancarlo Stanton's contract? Are they going to sign DJ LeMahieu? Or will they bring up Miguel Andohar to play second base, to be the full-time second baseman at a cheap cost and let LeMahieu go? Thank God I'm not Brian Cashman. To me, those are the directions they need to go. Sanchez gone, see what you can bring back. They need a number two starter in the worst way and a left-handed bat. If they get those three things, the Yankees could, I mean, the Yankees could contend now. But if they want to get to a World Series, I think that's what they need. And who knows with Chapman? If he continues to blow these games, then the Yankees may not even make it to a World Series. They're going to have to outslug everybody and not have Chapman in those situations where he's going to have to make saves. But we all know that that's going to be impossible because you know there's going to be close games throughout a postseason no matter how you cut it. Now let's go over to the National League where the Dodgers and Braves had a relatively easy road to get to the NLCS. The Dodgers swept the Padres. I know game two was the pivotal game where the Padres were down 4-3 to the tune where Fernando Tatis Jr. was robbed of a home run at center field by Cody Bellinger to the chagrin of Manny Machado who was standing on deck and the reliever Gratterall Bruzar Gratterall who threw his glove up in the air or threw it toward the dugout in celebration of the catch made by Bellinger and then Machado voiced his displeasure towards Gratterall and the Dodger dugout meanwhile the inning before or two innings before when Machado hit the home run to make it 4-3 he didn't flip his bat he pretty much threw it as a javelin toward the Padre dugout and inside of this team to let's go and get back in the game, et cetera, et cetera. So Machado needs to pipe down about that. But they had their opportunity tonight. They had Kenley Jansen on the ropes. They even had to pull Kenley Jansen and bring in Joe Kelly, who certainly wasn't a day at the beach as he walked Tatis and Machado back-to-back before getting Eric Hosmer to ground out the end of the game. And then they blitzed the Padres in game three. I believe the final was 12-3 to to sweep that series and move on to the league championship series. And pretty much the same for the Braves, where they were down 4-1 in game one of the Marlins. Actually, into the seventh inning, and then they just piled it on at that point. Travis Darnold, who's looking like Johnny Bench all of a sudden, who had a killer series, win game one, and then the Marlins were not to be heard of ever since. They didn't even score a run in those final two games. So even after them scoring the four runs early and they tacked on one run late, they weren't able to have another runner across home plate the rest of the series and the Braves went ahead and easily disposed of the Marlins in three games. And now you have this series where 
I think what it's going to boil down to is which bullpen is going to rise to the occasion. And I would think that the Braves, who have the better bullpen, not necessarily the better pitching staff, because even with Max Freed and Ian Anderson's perform well here in this postseason, but we don't know Mike Soroka, Mike Fultonavich, guys like that, and their bullpen is a lot better than the Dodgers with Kenley Jansen, who, as you saw, who does not have the zip on his fastball as he once did. And Joe Kelly is a walking tightrope. And guys who who could come out of the bullpen and really pitch in a pressure spot where the Dodgers, you haven't really seen that a lot other than the game two against the Padres and they were able to beat them. But this Brave team has a better lineup than the Padres, a little bit more experience. We know who the guys are in the Brave lineup day in and day out. That's to me what's going to boil down to. Which bullpen's going to pitch better and will the Braves starting pitching also rise to the occasion here because we know about the starting pitching that the Dodgers will throw out. And Kershaw's been excellent here so far this postseason in his two starts. Walker Bueller the same, although you got to wonder about those blisters. So if the Brave rotation could hold up and the Dodger bullpen could do the same, those are the keys in the series. And I can't stand the, I can't stand both teams, to be quite honest. But I'm going to say the Dodgers win six. Dodgers have been, I'm sure they've been waiting for this opportunity and they're still one step ahead from a World Series. But when are they going to win a World Series? And I'm sure everybody in LA is thinking that. And I'm also sure that whatever juju that the Lakers have, they're going to try to spread that over up the road to Chavez Ravine in Dodger Stadium. Although they're not playing their games there, but you know what I mean. I just think postseason resume, despite the bitter heartbreak and losses that they've had over the years, but I just see them getting back to a World Series. Which leads me to my final thing of baseball. I know Rob Manfred, the powers that be in the MLB offices downtown here in Manhattan. Even with the Tampa Bay Rays winning yesterday, I know they are praying to the highest of heavens to hope that the Houston Astros make it to a World Series and face the LA Dodgers. Because once and for all, 2017 and cheating scandal aside, it could be fair and square. We could finally, possibly, get revenge, whether you're a Dodger fan or a hater of the Astros, or for the Astros to get that vindication to show and prove that, yeah, we may have cheated, but ha, what are you going to say now? Like Carlos Correa said after the first round against Minnesota. And that would be a World Series that people will watch. And I know that the suits in the MLB offices know that. Because anything short of a Dodger-Astro World Series will be just an ultimate tank job when it comes to eyeballs to the sets and ratings of concern. No one will care. Even if it's Houston and Atlanta. Same deal. They're going to think it's an NFL or NBA game. They're not going to think it's Astros and Braves. Tampa and anybody is going to be terrible. Now the baseball may be good if it's Rays and Dodgers or even Rays and Braves. And the Rays and Braves played against one another this year. Of course with the way the schedule was aligned. But if it is not Houston versus LA... Man, Fox is going to be drowning in their lentil soup because 
I can't say it any more than I already have. You know they had their fingers, eyes, and legs crossed hoping that the Astros make it and the Dodgers make it. Because anything short of that is just going to be a disaster. You got to call like you see it. And also just one note, Rick Renteria, manager, now former manager of the White Sox, and the White Sox have agreed to part ways, so, and he did not have a good postseason at all. A million pitching changes in that game three against Oakland, and uh, that game was what, like seemed like it was 10 hours for a nine inning game. So we'll see where the White Sox go as far as the manager is concerned, and that's a very interesting job. They have a lot of young talent, up and coming talent, that's a team that has a window that is not even cracked open. I thought they were maybe even a year ahead of schedule. And I get condensed 60 games. Let me see this over course of 162. But that window is just about getting started to crack open. And remember, their prize prospect, Michael Kopech, the pitcher, he should be coming back from Tommy John next year. That's another guy that you could add to their rotation to go along with some of the other guys that they got this offseason. I know Keiko, I believe, only signed a one-year deal. So unless they re-sign him. But a lot of promise there for the Southsiders there as far as the White Sox go. All right, let's get to the NHL real quick and everything that happened with them over the course of the last week or so. The draft was Monday. No surprise. Alexis Lafreniere gets drafted by the Rangers. He's a guy that has a lot of promise. Anytime you have a number one pick, you feel as if your franchise is getting ready to go to the next level. You feel like you're going to get a jolt as far as your fan base your future, and here's a guy that I'm sure is going to provide a lot of that. A lot of pressure right off the bat, coming to New York. The one good thing that he has on his side is that he does not have to be the savior. Because you have a goal scorer in Artemi Panarin, who's going to be, if not the face of the Rangers, but of course one of the key focal points of that team. It's not as if Lafreniere has to come in there and pretty much take the organization, the team, the city by storm. He could just kind of blend in and be that guy that could just be another piece to the puzzle in order for them to get to a Stanley Cup. Remember, they also drafted Capo Caco last year, the number two overall. So there's another guy that's also going to be front and center as far as the face of this organization as well. And the Rangers, they're going to be set up for years now. Talk about a window that's just about getting cracked. There's one right there. And when you look at some of these moves... Over the course of the last week. I mean you had a few trades. I know Max Domi got traded to Columbus. Remember he was of the Montreal Canadiens. Vegas traded away Paul Stasny. To Winnipeg for Carl Dahlstrom. Who knows what Dahlstrom's going to add to Vegas. And vice versa. Stasny going to Winnipeg. A lot of these signings here. Some surprises if you ask me. I didn't know if there was enough gas left in the tank for Henrik Lundqvist. But he felt as if he could add one more year to a team that is. This close to making it to a Stanley Cup final. And the Capitals did just that by signing him to a one-year deal. Where Braden Holtby, the longtime goaltender, goes to Vancouver. And the big splash, speaking of Vancouver, was Jacob Markstrom, who signed with Calgary to a six-year, $36 million deal. Tory Krug, another big offseason acquisition. The St. Louis Blues, they signed him seven years, $45 million, which I was surprised he got that much money. I know Krug is a... Big skater, defenseman, big shot, but wow. Uh, good for him. Kudos to him. Not No knock, but, you know, Tory Krug, in my estimation, he's not going to be confused with 
the Eric Carlsons, the Drew Doughty's, and the Victor Hedmonds of the world. The Devils signed Corey Crawford, the former Blackhawk goalkeeper. Toronto also signs uh, defenseman TJ Brody to a four-year $20 million deal. They also signed Wayne Simmons for some toughness. Kevin Shattenkirk, formerly of the Lightning, he signs a big deal with Anaheim, three years for $11 million. Zach Bogosian, also of the Lightning, he signs with Toronto to add some more toughness there. A lot of wheeling and dealing. And even though the NHL doesn't have the same appeal like baseball or football, even basketball for that matter, but you did have a lot of players going elsewhere, a lot of players changing addresses. Those are some of the key, some of the big deals that uh, took place there. I thought Krug, like I said, a little bit too much for my liking. But St. Louis did what it had to get themselves a defenseman. And I know Alex Pietrangelo, who was a longtime captain who did not play this year. His status is uncertain as to where he's going to go. And I don't believe he's been signed as of yet, so we'll wait and see with him. Taylor Hall is another guy who signs a one-year, $8 million deal with Buffalo. We know his pedigree as far as being a former MVP, getting traded from the Devils to Arizona, and then now he goes to Buffalo for one year, so let's see how that experiment works. Thomas Grice signs with the Red Wings, the former Islander goaltender, where the Islanders also signed Sebastian Ajo from Carolina. So we'll see how these deals shape up down the road for these teams, for these rosters, as they'll continue to evolve and compile and build towards next season, which I said from uh, earlier will start January 1st. I believe it's officially announced that the NHL will begin on that day. Schedules to be determined. And then one note, the man who is known as Mr. Game 7, Justin Williams, he retired after a long career in the NHL. He won Cups with Carolina, with LA. I believe he was actually the Conn Smythe winner in 2014. That was the year when they won the Cup against the Rangers. During his career, his teams were 8-1 and in Game 7s, and he had 15 points, or tallied 15 points over the course of those Game 7s. Therefore, receiving that moniker of Mr. Game 7. So Justin Williams on a great career as he goes off into the sunset. So congratulations to him. So that'll do it for the hockey And lastly, I'll get to the French Open as that concluded over the weekend where you had Iga Swiatek being the first Polish player to ever win a Grand Slam singles tournament at the tender age of 19 at that. Defeating Sofia Kennan 6-4 and 6-1. And as we know, the women's side was wide open this year where you had Serena bow out of the tournament early due to the Achilles. Also, Naomi Osaka who did not participate because of her winning the U.S. Open just a couple weeks prior to that and wanting just to take the time off to rest the hamstring. And as wide open as it was, where you had a bunch of former champions and now have Iga Swiatek, I don't want to say, does it belong in the asterisk column? Hey, listen, she endured. She earned it. I get no Serena, Naomi Hasaka, and some of the other players, Coco Goff, who was bounced early. But Swiatek deserved it, and kudos to her and to her country for being the first player to win a Grand Slam tournament. Congratulations to her. And then on the flip side of that, what else is new for Rafa Nadal to win his 13th French Open, 20th overall to tie with Roger Federer all-time for Grand Slam victories on the men's side, beating Novak Djokovic in straight sets. And that's the one thing. I understand you would like to see more balance when it comes to champions, especially when it comes to the individual tournaments, whether you're golf, 
and you win a ton of majors, you want to have that balance. So let's say, for instance, with Tiger, we know that across the board, he'll have, I can't think off the top of my head, I believe he's won five Masters, he's won three U.S. Opens, three British, and however many PGA he has left to balance that out, maybe four. So you'd like to see that across the board as opposed to it being a person who wins a certain amount of majors. You're going to look at that and say that even though it's not skewed, but we know it hasn't been balanced throughout the course of his career because he's won 13 French Opens, a couple of Wimbledons, I believe four U.S. Opens, and then one Australian. Give it up. He's, the, he's an all-time great. And you can't diminish or denigrate anything he's done. But when you look at the body of work and see that, think about it. 65% of his Grand Slam titles have come from one tournament. Not only does it say a lot and how he plays on that surface, but it also makes you think, well, geez, I'm sure at 50 years old, he'd probably go out and win the French Open. But when it comes to the other tournaments, it's kind of up and down. But I want to rain on this parade. It's just an observation. This is why I do what I do, people. So, therefore, give it up to Rafa. And I like Rafa. I've always loved him as a player. His tenacity, his intensity, all of that. But, again, without raining more on this parade, congratulations to number 20 and tying Roger Federer. And that was actually the last Grand Slam tournament of the year. So, the Australian next year, as it starts up, and we'll see what the... Lay of the land looks like as far as the COVID world that we live in, especially down under, to get the 2021 season off on the right foot with the Australian to see if Rafa or Roger could get that 21st Grand Slam victory of all time. All right, now let's get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero, and there's more than one, and sad to say, what else is new? Seems like every week it's another passing of another legend and unfortunately there were two of them and one just happened earlier today and I'll start with that one. Joe Morgan, the second baseman of the Cincinnati Reds, the famed big red machine, two-time back-to-back MVP, 75 and 76, died today at the age of 77. Complications due to some health issues that he had over the years and remember he was also a very good broadcaster all those years in the booth with John Miller at ESPN for Sunday Night Baseball. He was a guy that was diminutive, but had not only just a big bat, a big glove, but also a big heart. Played on those championship teams of the Reds in the mid-70s. He had that famous and great stance where he always bucked or always had to flex that left arm of his before he took a swing, which as a kid, and I never batted left-handed, but I always mimicked on the right side at times. Just sad to see him go. And also, a one Edward Charles Whitey Ford, chairman of the board, all-time great Yankee, 236 victories, so many World Series performances, died at the age of 91. Word had it that he actually died watching the Yankees the night of Game 4 on Thursday. And he lived a long life, 91. If anybody can make it to 91, you know that's a good life. So, for those two guys... Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to their families, all-time greats, Hall of Famers, you name it, to go alongside Tom Seaver and Lou Brock and Bob Gibson. Uh, The list goes on, not only just in baseball, but sports overall. So they get my heroes of the week. And my zero of the week is Wichita State coach Greg Marshall, who was under investigation for allegations of misconduct 
brought up by former and current players regarding verbal and physical abuse. I don't know what makes anyone think, whether it's a coach, player, high executive in the organization that would have any authority to berate, abuse, whether physically, verbally, it's inexcusable. I mean, I don't know how he got away with it that long if he had former players coming out against him, but we'll see how that investigation goes. But Greg Marshall, you my guy, you are my zero of the week. And that'll do it, people, for episode 159. Thanks for hanging in there with me. I know there's a lot to discuss, a lot to delve into, a lot to base my opinions, my thoughts, analysis, everything on everything that's happening in the world of sports. And I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate you for downloading and listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. So as a reminder, if you haven't done so already, if you could please go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. As you well know, there are just countless podcasts that are out there with the sports entertainment, true crime, you name it, but in particular with this realm of sports, all I ask for you to do is just leave a rating, also post a review, and even subscribe to when you get this podcast, it'll go right to your phone, your tablet, or your device, wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, you name it, because in turn, I want to not only increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, but also generate interest for those who aren't familiar with this podcast, whether that is the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, sports writer, blogger, studio host, whomever it may be, because I want to have them on as guests so I could be on Bike Weekly twice a week. So come later in the week, I'll have that guest still working on one as we speak. Been working on one for quite some time, but as the low man on the podcast totem pole you know it's that much harder for me to try to get that credible person to share their experience whether it was on the field in the booth or behind their laptop writing about what took place in the world of sports so if you could go ahead and do that I would greatly appreciate it also if you want to follow me on any of my social media accounts you could do so on Instagram whether it's J Reels or the J Reels podcast which is strictly sports Twitter J Reels one just the number Facebook, the J Reels podcast, or if you want to send me an email the old-fashioned way or drop a DM on any of those aforementioned accounts, you could do so at the J Reel podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, please send it my way. I'll be sure to follow up with you. And then lastly, if you want to support the podcast behind the scenes, as far as the production goes, you could do so on my Patreon account, which is www.patreon. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy, dot com slash the J Reels podcast, whether it's the maintenance for the website, production value, upgrade of equipment, anything that has to do with this podcast, 100% of it will go towards that. And if you were to do so, again, I would greatly appreciate that as well. Because whether you do or do not know, sports is what I love. I've been here for 159 episodes. I plan to be here for 159,000 more, God willing. And I love to discuss anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>